and sand drifts in nautilus shells. She found words calling to her from the air and from the sea, and she made two fists of sand on the beach, and cascades of words fell beside her. Maggie was taken prisoner. The language had seized and held her in a grip that would not loosen. Maggie came to me when she had something to show that she'd written. You trust the guys and girls who were there when you were born. First of all, I found myself dazzled by the utter plain song beauty of her prose. I've always been one of those readers ensnared by the bright flow of language and the masters who can hurl that language into the air to make new galaxies for a tired-out sky. Instantly, I knew I'd discovered a grandmaster with Maggie, and her book flew me out toward the great books, where ideas were as original as the words themselves. Once in Rome, I met the great Italian fabulist, Italo Calvino, at a coffee bar after I'd recently finished his book, Invisible Cities. My first impulse was to drop to my knees and kiss his ring, but he seemed much too shy to endure such an outrageous gesture. I've mentioned my admiration of Calvino to all my friends, and many have fallen in love with his work, but many also despise him. Because Calvino writes with such breathtaking subtlety, he's not understood by the literalist of this world. Robert Jordan and I both graduated from the Citadel, and I never realized the enormous power of his series of books called The Wheel of Time until after his death. A friend recommended, no, she forced upon me, the works of George R. R. Martin, and these artists set up my cotillion bells of memory, my first glorious encounters with Stephen King, Edgar Allan Poe, Anne Rice, and the great Tolkien himself. When I open a book, I command that the writer turn me inside out, earns my respect with ideas and encounters I've never dreamed of or imagined in my most crestfallen nightmares. In 1982, when I was living in Rome, the novelist Jonathan Carroll sent me his first novel. It was called The Land of Laughs, and I was enjoying it with pleasure when two dogs began talking to each other. That stopped me in mid-sentence. But the book had already grabbed me by the collar. I finished it and called Jonathan right away to tell him how much I loved his novel. Now I've been reading Jonathan Carroll for 30 years, and his work is strange, hallucinatory, and necessary. He opened my mind to fictional works I had never traversed, and my life's been richer for it. Recently he sent me a copy of his collected short stories— and there's a sweetness of magic on every page. Though Maggie Shine calls her stories fables, I'm not convinced that's an accurate title. But because Maggie went to the University of Chicago and I went to the Citadel, she's a lot smarter than I am and wins every argument with me. Maggie Shine has written an oddball, perverse work of genius. Her fables are a genuine seeker's attempt to bring order to the world to subdue chaos, to establish laws among tribes that are brand new to language. Omens abound, and eagles scream truths from a thousand feet, and every line is a poem that brings order to a restless universe. She writes a sentence like a string of black pearls, and I believe a cult is about to form to track her future path as an artist.
She won't give you a single thing of what you want, but she'll give you a lot more. Her cantos seem enchanted to me, as if they were some secret language found on the rear ceilings or the walls of Lascaux. Her realm is timeless and enchanted, and braided together with all the power and seduction of myth itself. Maggie Shine writes like a fallen angel, and I was there on the night of her birth. Chapter 1. The Questioner Even the most ordinary patterns of life and thought, those we most take for granted, must be carefully checked and mended, lest they fall apart from wear or age. In fact, it should be no surprise that the ordinary is especially vulnerable, since it is the most weathered. The seamstress, who checks the seams and reinforces them, and patches the...